The following is a rebroadcast of Studio Tulsa. This program first aired last year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. The COVID-19 pandemic, costing more than one million American lives, has taught us many things, one of which is the importance of good ventilation. Interestingly, another economic and political crisis from the 1970s about energy costs led to the era of so-called sick buildings when we deliberately designed structures to be as airtight and energy efficient as possible. That lack of adequate indoor air exchange unfortunately accelerates viral transmission as well as other toxins. Well, my guest today is an expert in forensic investigations of so-called sick buildings with the scientific and investigative experience to find out what can cause ailments, how they filter in, and how to remedy them. Joseph Allen is an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he directs Harvard's Healthy Buildings program. Allen is the co-author of a new book titled Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Make You Sick or Keep You Well, that's just come out in a second edition updated for COVID. The book is written for a general audience, so even if building construction and airflow is not your thing, you'll get a sense of how interesting it can be and the way Joe Allen makes it. Joe Allen is our guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Joe Allen, welcome to Medical Monday. Let's start by just having you talk about a leading concept in your book, which is why we ignore the 90%, that is, the 90% of time we spend in our lives, which is indoors. Yeah, so thanks for having me. And um, that's right. I mean, we are an indoor species. Like it or not, you know, we spend the vast, vast, vast majority of our time indoors. And the way I like to think about it, or, you know, I can ask your listeners to do this, is you can find out what your indoor age is. So take your age, multiply it by 0.9. That's how many years you've lived indoors. So if we're lucky enough to reach 80, we've spent 72 years of our life indoors in offices, in our homes, in schools, in cars, in airplanes, and everywhere else. And I think when you think about it that way, it just becomes obvious and intuitive that the indoor environment has an outsized impact on our health. But if you ask people what constitutes healthy living, you know, they're going to tell you, well, I know I need to exercise 30 minutes a day, got to eat healthy, got to avoid fast food and junk food. You know, outdoor air pollution is bad for me. But how many people think about the indoor environment where we spend our entire life and the role it plays in our health? And I think the answer is not many. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point. And on this program, we often talk about those things a lot, you know, the 30 minutes of exercise and eating with nutrition in mind. But you're right, we don't really focus so much. But there's an increased awareness in the medical world about social determinants of health. And one of those things, of course, is housing and neighborhood effects. And so I do think there's an increasing awareness in the medical community about healthy buildings. But I would say physicians uh, that I work with, often we do have patients come in. It's not super often, but it is, you know, not infrequent that people come in and say, you know, I'm worried about blank. I, you know, I live in my building or my landlord is... Um, not treating me fairly, or there's, you know, mold is often a consideration, certainly infestations, bugs, people can see, but mold is something that's particularly troublesome because people can see it. And it's, I think it's hard to remediate. And it's also hard to know how dangerous it is. It's just something that makes people uncomfortable. So, you know, what is a good thing, I think, for our listeners to know about a sick building, or if, if they are worried that the place they live or work is not well, like what kinds of recourses might they have? Well, I think the first thing, I mean, you raised a couple really good points, right? There are things we know or people are generally in tune to their environment. If something's not right, clearly you can see molds. Oftentimes we're in a space and we say, hey, it's stuffy in here. Something doesn't smell right. Something's, I, I, I smell a chemical smell. And I, I think the number one thing to do is trust your senses. 
we have uh, uh, the best, the, the human senses are, are better than, you know, the, the best scientific instruments we have. And, and having done, you know, um, work around sick buildings uh, for almost two decades now, the first thing I've ever done in these is to, you talk to the people and, and they know and they get a sense, they'll give you a sense of what's going on. Hey, it's this corner of the building. It's this time of day. It's this kind of smell. Maybe they can't pinpoint it, but they know what's going on. Um, but unfortunately, I think a lot of times people get dismissed who raise these issues at work or at school or anywhere else. And they're, they're labeled sometimes as complainers, right? Oh, it's that's psychosomatic. That's in your head. Uh, that's not real. But um, what I've learned in 20 years is to trust people. Uh, absolutely. And, um, and they're often uh, right. And they, they have the best idea of what's going on and often what's going wrong uh, in, in indoors. Yeah. And so just by way of uh, example, you, you, you um, in the book, you talk about volatile organic compounds, which are so prevalent in our environment and in, in the products we use and in the materials we use. Um, what should people know about that in general? Yeah, so these are VOCs are common chemicals that uh, off gas every from everything from your shampoo and deodorant, other personal care products off gas off of um, carpets and furniture, most obvious or most common that people are used to is, is paint, right? So as paint dries, it's releasing VOCs, you can smell that new paint smell, or, you know, if you get your floor redone or finished, you can smell, you know, or you open up a new mattress, you can kind of smell these VOCs. So it's a wide range of chemicals. Some are quite toxic. Think about like benzene in, uh, in, um, in gas for your car. That's a known carcinogen. And some are less toxic, but maybe irritating to the eyes or other senses. And so it's a challenging topic because, it, you know, VOCs, it's hundreds and hundreds of these different chemicals. But I'd say the, the good thing or the, what people can do about that, right? Don't want to just talk about the problems without offering solutions is that we can choose things like low VOC paints. We can choose materials that have lower VOC content that off gas less. And if you're in a place where you can't choose a better product or that emits less, uh, something like better ventilation or increasing the amount of outdoor air that helps dilute the indoor VOCs is helpful. Sometimes that's as simple as cracking open a window. Um, but if you're in an office, it just means you know, bringing in a bit more outdoor air to help dilute uh, the indoor sources of these you know, complex chemical mixtures. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about air circulation because sometimes in certain buildings, uh, and you know, obviously with the pandemic, and we'll touch on that certainly, it, you know, air exchange has become you know, vitally important, or we've recognized, I would say, its importance more vitally. And how do, how can buildings or workplaces think about this because they they have to for one thing in order to coax their workers back to some extent because we've now seen this tremendous shift in terms of workers being able to work from home or work remotely. And uh, it's not often easy for people to just crack a window if they work in sort of a fixed building. And interestingly, you point out in the book that uh, many uh, constructions of certain periods were sort of made with the idea of, in effect, lessening air exchange or minimizing the importance of air exchange or putting air exchangers in places that weren't so convenient or where the intakes uh, might, in fact, take in, you know, dangerous fumes or things like that. So are builders now given over to really paying much more careful attention to this? Well, I think people are paying attention to it, and that's because of COVID. Um, but, you know, we should look about the historical reason as to why we're in this place in the first place, but why we're in this mess. And the reality is we've designed our buildings to not breathe. We've designed them to save energy so much so that we've choked off the air supply, right? And this is, if you look back at when and why this happened, we had a global energy crisis in the 1970s. 
So what are some of the things that came out of that? Well, we've tightened up our building energy codes. We tightened up our building envelopes to save energy, save money on energy, all good and important. But at the same time, what we were doing is we were essentially choking off the air supply in our buildings. And so we ushered in what is known as the sick building era, where we have these spaces where if you think about the indoor sources, like we talked about VOCs or particles while from cooking and, uh, and a million other sources indoors, including viruses, they build up indoors when, when we're not letting our buildings breathe or we're not filtering that air a lot. So it's actually by design, by code, we've underventilated our buildings. And I'll give you the reason why or point to an obvious example as to why and show how this is just built into our design of our buildings. The standard that governs ventilation rates in buildings is called the standard for acceptable indoor air quality. Acceptable is in the name. So it's a bare minimum standard. And I think objectively, this level of acceptable is no longer acceptable. It's ushered in this sick building area. We've been living with it for 40 years. And then you we get hit with a virus, a novel virus, COVID-19, that spreads nearly entirely indoors in underventilated spaces. So you have a, a new virus that spreads indoors, bumping up against our entire building stock designed for bare minimum ventilation standards. Is it any wonder we had the crisis that we had? It really, you, you make it pretty straightforward. It's it's not really any wonder. And so that is really concerning. And so you, you mentioned the era of sick buildings. What are some of the sort of changes in building codes? I guess, how, how recent have those changes occurred? And what, what changes do you foresee coming down the pike? Well, look, I, I think a lot of things have to change, right? We're going to have to increase, we're going to have to improve these standards. And first and foremost, we have to set standards that are health-based. It sounds silly even saying that, right? What, what do you mean our, our, our building standards are not health-based? Well, they're not. And uh, I think people are waking up to that. I know a lot of good organizations are already moving way beyond the codes and saying, hey, I don't really care what the code is. We know we have to do this to protect our employees and our workers and our teachers. We're just going to go ahead and go above and beyond code because expectations have changed. Companies see this as an existential threat. It was a, it was a, they see it as a good ventilation and healthy buildings as part of business continuity. Hey, I got to keep my people healthy, of course, and my buildings. What do I have to do? I don't really care what that the code says. I'm going above and beyond those code minimums. So we see people taking action right now. But I think for it to impact all buildings everywhere, we're going to have to improve the the standards so that it's not just the wealthy school districts or the well-to-do companies that are going to go ahead and make these changes and have healthier workers, healthier teachers, healthier students. Um, but that it benefits everyone everywhere. Okay, I'm going to reintroduce you. You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. And my guest today is Joe Allen, who is an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he directs Harvard's Healthy Buildings Program. And he has a long career as a forensic investigator of sick buildings. And he's the co-author of the revised second edition of the book, Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Can Make You Sick or Keep You Well. And we're talking about building codes doing just that, trying to raise those minimums from, as you point out, Joe, acceptable to hopefully healthy, healthful. And so I'm wondering, when you talk about people going above and beyond sort of the current minimum standards to try to do the so-called right thing, I mean, the pushback is always going to be cost, right? And so you, you lay out some of that in the book. First of all, I was just kind of gobsmacked at how much of our sort of national empire our resources are, is in our building stock. Can you just give us like some of those 
numbers. I mean, just in terms of dollars and cents or buildings that are out there. Uh, I mean, it was it, it kind of blew me away. Yeah, I mean, the business case for healthy buildings is airtight. And um, sorry for that, but the you know I co-authored the book with John Macomber, a professor at Harvard Business School, is an expert in real estate finance, and we just make the simple health case using you know science and data from my field, and then we use the business economics from his field to show why this is just good business. So let's put some numbers on it. We did a study in my team at Harvard that looked at the benefits of better indoor air quality on worker cognitive function and productivity. And we model this out, we estimate that the benefits are on the order of six to $7,000 per person per year against a cost of $40 per person per year. So orders of magnitude benefit compared to cost. When John and I in the book walk through what this means for a business, and we show this in, in pro formas in the book, business pro formas that show benefits of 10% to the bottom line performance of a company, simply for making improvements to indoor air quality. Right? You know, it doesn't require anything of the employees. It doesn't require them learning a new enterprise-wide software system or a new change management plan. They just have to breathe good air, and it leads to better productivity. It's not just our study. We show in the books. It's decades of science showing better air quality linked with better productivity, better cognitive function. And so the financial case is clear. From an individual perspective, we see the benefits in worker productivity. When we roll this up into a business, we see business benefits on the order of 10%. We have colleagues down the road at MIT who showed that from an investor perspective or developer perspective, that these healthy buildings command higher rents per square foot. And then if you take a real macro look at this, colleagues at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab have shown that there are over $20 billion on the table, $20 billion of benefits to the U.S. economy simply from improving indoor air quality. So really, any way you look at this, individual level, business level, investor, developer, or societal, there's really no reason why we shouldn't be pursuing these healthy building strategies, because if we do a proper cost benefit analysis, not just the cost, hey, what's this going to cost, but the benefits in terms of health, well-being, reduced disease transmission, better productivity, the benefits so far outweigh the costs, and the costs aren't even that much in the first place. So it's important to spread this word, I think, because it doesn't seem readily apparent after reading your book, it's, it's much more apparent, as you point out. And I thought the pro formas, although it sounds intimidating, they actually were kind of like back of the envelope math. I mean, it really just adds up and makes sense. And so as you point out at these different levels, it does really come to make economic sense on, on sort of every level. So I guess the question is, what's standing in the way of this kind of progress where it's just that society moves slowly and there's a kind of political forces at will because building and, and building codes are always tied up into, into politics, right? Yeah, I think some of it, um, and by the way, thanks for the compliment. That's nice that it's readable. I agree. I think the math is really straightforward. There's nothing complicated about what we're talking about. We tried to make the book really readable. It's not a you know a textbook for a, a class at a school of public health or a business school. It's really just for the average reader that wants to understand you know, how to make their buildings a bit healthier and make the business case for why this makes a lot of sense. So in terms of why this hasn't been fully adopted, I mean, there are companies who have seen this. I had an executive, uh, you know, prior to COVID, I had an executive tell me uh, after a presentation, well, you know, even if my math was off by two orders of magnitude, it's still worth it. And I said, you're right in the sense that it's definitely worth it, but he's wrong in the sense that the math is wrong by two <laughs> orders of magnitude. Like the math is the math and the benefits are just so clear. So why haven't, hasn't this been adopted? I think one is the, uh, the education component. You know, this message has been hidden and trapped in scientific journals. All of this great evidence that hospitals and, and clinics and, and schools can leverage to say, hey, if we make these decisions, it's going to benefit patients, benefit students, benefit 
our workers. Um, but I think the big change has happened, like everything else, is when COVID hit, everyone's eyes really opened to the importance of healthy buildings. It wasn't right away. First piece I wrote was in February 9th, 2020. Healthy buildings should be the first line of defense against a novel airborne virus. It took CDC, WHO, and others over a year to recognize this. But at this point, at this point, it is well recognized that this virus and other respiratory viruses are spread through the air. And that means the building matters. So whereas prior to the pandemic, I think there are a handful of companies I was working with that were doing it, the companies you might expect, through the pandemic and post-pandemic, it's now every sector of the economy is talking about this. The nonprofits are doing it, finance, biotech, pharma, commercial real estate, healthcare, education, higher education, are all recognizing that we have to make these improvements in buildings. So there is a monumental shift underway in terms of the awareness. I think when we wrote the book, part of the reason of writing the book was to say, there's a lot of great information. I don't think people are really leveraging for their benefit. And we need a fundamental change in how we think about and design and operate our buildings. And when COVID hit, you know, it just became glaringly obvious that our buildings were deficient and that there's a lot, uh, a lot we could do. I want to step back for one second because you highlighted something there uh, that I wanted to point out. In one of the chapters, you talk about sort of the mega changes that have occurred in society that um, I think are, you know, fueling some of this discussion. And one of those, I think, is the ESG movement. That's the uh, environmental, uh, social awareness and governmental. And uh, is that when you were talking about pre-pandemic, those were the companies you're saying that we might expect to be more concerned about this type of, of issue? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And talk about a movement that has just has only picked up steam since we wrote the first wrote the book. And that was early on, we were saying, hey, this this uh, ESG trend is not going away. And I think part of the reason we threw it in this book was to tell people that when you think about ESG, yes, you have to think about board governance and diversity, equity, inclusion, and all these other metrics that we think about, when we think about ESG, but a lot of people were forgetting the building. So in terms of let's take environmental, buildings consume 40% of global energy. If you have an ESG program at your company that does not have an aggressive green building program or healthy building program that takes account of the energy use in your building, well, that's a mistake. I uh, think about the social benefits here, about people's health and well-being and the power of buildings to influence a worker's health, uh, where I think almost everybody in their ESG program talks about health, but probably talks about a healthcare plan or a you know physical activity plan or some of the wellness benefits. And that's all great and important, of course. But our point is that, hey, buildings, like we talked about right when we opened the, this, uh, this conversation, by virtue of the fact we spend all of our time in them, they're influencing our health in profound ways. And if you're going to have an ESG program, you better have healthy buildings as the foundation. And I think a lot of the ESG conversation doesn't do that, but um, certainly the, the ESG movement is real. And, um, and I'll give you a quick example where it's influencing commercial real estate. Uh, you have a hard time getting investor money right now to do a development, a redevelopment deal, uh, unless you have a very strong ESG component. And if you're building buildings, well, you have to have healthy buildings as uh, as the core. And investors are actually looking for this. So you have the bottom-up movement driven by people who demand and expect more, thanks to COVID and the awareness it has raised. And you have a top-down pressures coming from the investment community that says, well, it better be a healthy building if you're talking about ESG and, and, the, and your company. And I think that's really propelling the whole healthy buildings movement right now. It is really interesting. And so 
I guess since the, the pandemic, you said you your first article was in uh, February of 2020, um, and it took kind of the rest of the world, World Health Organization, CDC, a, a whole other year to sort of uh, figure out that buildings were important. I guess one message might be, yeah, let's spend more time outside than that 90%. But another message uh, uh, is you're probably a pretty busy guy these days, huh? Yeah, it's been busy, but and I agree with you, right? Let's spend more time outside. I think that's great. Also in Boston, the weather's about to turn. Like the reality is a lot of people can't. And a lot of workers can't. We're spending our time indoors in our homes. And that's just the way we've organized society. So it doesn't mean we don't get outside. I just think we need to make a lot of the indoors look a little bit more like the outdoors in terms of the places that have good, clean, fresh air, bring a little bit more nature inside through things like biophilic design. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I'd say I've gotten a lot busier. One is I've been doing advising around sick buildings for a long time when the pandemic hit. And I was working with some multinational companies on healthy buildings projects. And they saw the signs coming out of China in early January. And I was remember being in New York City meeting, having lunch and talking about this and recognizing just how severe this problem was. I think a lot of the US was asleep at that time. And it was clear to me that, yes, there was a lot of uncertainty, but we knew from SARS-1 and other coronaviruses and influenza that airborne spread was definitely happening. And if not the dominant mode of transmission. And so the first piece I wrote was in January, 2020, raising awareness, hey, this is spread through the air and therefore buildings matter. I couldn't land it in a US newspaper. I finally published it in an international newspaper, Financial Times in February 9, 2020. It took me six or eight weeks. I finally landed a very similar article in the New York Times in early March, talking about the things we're talking about today, better ventilation, better filtration. And so it wasn't that, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty, but we also knew from prior viruses how to respond and what it was going to take. Now, the original sin of the pandemic was the failure to recognize airborne transmission because you can't set control strategy unless you know how something is spread. That sounds obvious. So when CDC, World Health Organization, others are saying it's droplet transmission and fomite transmission or transmission through surfaces, well, then the control strategies they talked about were stand six feet from people, wash down surfaces. And then so we had people placing stickers on floors and schools, and we had people wiping down their groceries. So basically, we're protecting against the wrong thing. And no one was talking about airborne transmission, which means the building got neglected. And so I wrote 50-something op-eds in the New York Times, Washington Post. I wrote in Harvard Business Review. I've been on television talking about this. I've, I've written in uh, with colleagues in international scientific journals, raising the alarm and flag that airborne transmission dominates buildings matter, good ventilation filtration are critical to this response. It took us a long time to win that argument. And now I think it's uh, unequivocal that that's the case, but it cost us, it cost us dearly during the first year of that pandemic, trying to get that message out. And we knew it, we knew it from day one that this was important, but buildings are often an afterthought. And Joe, I just think it's worth uh, mentioning here, you have a pretty fascinating sort of personal biography that I'd love it if you'd share a little bit about. You write about it in the in the book. But for one thing, I have never, I have not personally spoken to many people who started out as private investigators, um, but it seems like that has suited you extremely well in becoming a forensic investigator for sick buildings. So, I mean, if you don't mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about your journey, because there was this whole kind of like FBI polygraph fiasco that happened twice. It's just kind of hard to believe. Yeah, so I decided to just share it all in the opening of the book. And um, yeah, I guarantee I'm the only uh, public health grad student that started classes on the same day they uh, they failed the FBI polygraph examination for becoming a, a special agent. So I'll give you the full story. I have a, I have a biology degree. Uh, I went and 
uh, after I got uh, my degree from Boston College, I worked uh, as a private investigator in New York City, doing things you probably think that a private investigator does. Um, this was a family business. My father was a homicide detective, uh, and then eventually he went on to work in the private sector. I ran the pri private investigator company with my brother for a long time. And then eventually I knew I was a scientist at heart, went back to grad school, got a degree in public health, got a doctoral degree, uh, and then went on to do the forensic investigation of, of, of sick buildings. And for a long time in my career, I kind of pushed the private investigator thing down. I, I kept it quiet. I didn't see the connection to my scientific work. But over the years, I've, I've reflected on it and realized that, you know, a lot of the work I was doing as a private investigator, which is just observing and writing down things you see, and essentially, uh, is not all that different from what we do in science uh, and, and this, you know, investigator, private investigator into um, forensic investigator. There are definitely some overlaps in the approach. And so the FBI story is really interesting. When I was, uh, you know, just as I was applying to grad schools, I had been in the process of, a, of trying to advance my private investigator career. I thought about becoming a special agent in the FBI, passed a whole bunch of rounds of their tests, passed the written test, got invited to do a roundtable with F uh, special agents. And the last step I had to do was, uh, was take an FBI polygraph examination and do a physical fitness test. I trained all summer, was going to pass a physical fitness test. I was days away from going to Quantico to train and become a special agent. So it turns out I failed. The, the first polygraph test, as I write in the book, I think it was just an amateur uh, polygrapher who, you know, basically uh, was asking me silly questions that I, I thought were just laughable, you know, hey, Joe, you know, uh, I have a friend who does this and his uh, dentist writes some prescriptions uh, illegally. Is that what you're doing on the side? And, you know, it's kind of silly to set up these scenarios and kind of just laughed it off. Um, I thought it was silly. So anyway, I failed and uh, I wasn't sure why. So I appealed it and that was great. So the FBI flew in their top interrogator, who was in Iraq at the time, flew out, big, hulking guy wearing, you know, the big boots, uh, really tried to be intimidating. You know, he tried his best to intimidate me. He's in my face, yelling at me all, you know, I guess the things you'd think about in a polygraph and you're all wired up. But I was just, you know, trying to stay calm. I have nothing to hide. And, uh, you know, he's yelling at me and he tells me I failed, slams the doors, yelling at me in front of all the other special agents, hundreds of special agents in the office. And I'm thinking, oh, this is still part of it. Just keep your cool. Like they're going to open the door and say, hey, you won. Like, come on back in. Nice job staying cool. And it uh, turns out they failed me again. And I, I really don't know why I was failed. It makes me have a strong, um, you know, I'm really skeptical of, of polygraphs. I really had nothing to hide. And I was, uh, I was really surprised um, by the whole thing. And then, uh, you know, for years, I didn't really know why, you know, thinking, well, how did I fail? Like, I was really unflappable in the meeting. I stayed calm. And and somebody said to me, well, maybe that's one of the reasons they failed you is because they need to be able to intimidate you and, and get you nervous. Um, so they can see if you're doing something later on that, you know, they can see these kind of signals. And apparently my signal was just really kind of flat and calm, even while, you know, this guy was in my face yelling at me. So anyway, long story short, I failed it in the morning. I went to school that night for graduate school as a, uh, to start my professional degrees in, um, public health. And from there, uh, that's the story. I ended up in the right place, to be honest. I'm really glad. I'm a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health. I love my job, love the field. And I feel like I ended up uh, in the right spot, despite the unusual path. Yeah. I mean, life takes such interesting twists, but no doubt, like we as uh, consumers of information and uh, public radio aficionados and public health people are greatly the beneficiaries of that uh, distorted polygraph, which is, I, I feel like, not such a scientifically valid uh, measurement anyway. So it seems like uh, the FBI's loss has certainly been our gain. Um, I appreciate that. And I, I do also love how you uh, reflectively, you know, compare, you know, your scientific work with your private investigative work. So it's just, it's just uh, the parallels are so interesting. I, I think sometimes... As a physician, a lot of what I do is just interview people like all day. 
And uh, and so it, I realized that like there was definitely like an overlay with journalism. I, I love talking to people. So, well, the name of the book is Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Can Make You Sick or Keep You Well. And it's co-authored by my guest today, Joe Allen, who is an associate professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he directs Harvard's Healthy Buildings program. Joe Allen, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much. And I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Joe Allen is an associate professor at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, where he directs Harvard's Healthy Buildings program. The name of his new book is Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Can Make You Sick or Keep You Well. Well, that's our show for this Medical Monday. Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of KWGS or the University of Tulsa. For Studio Tulsa, I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe out there. <laughs>